Well, respect and information, ladies and gentlemen, veterans of all ages, our current active duty, the retired, the reservists, the National Guard, it's what you get. Another incredible program today, we're going to have an incredible conversation, one of the leading researchers in what's become as known as Gulf War illness and all the effects of military operations. And uh, I think it's going to be extraordinary. I met, I met him many, many years ago, and uh, what I've seen and learned from him has helped me and helped everybody else. Patricia Axelrod, who's uh, the director of the Desert Think Tank and a uh, MacArthur Foundation scholar and all-bets advocate. Uh, Patricia, you can introduce our guest because you've known him for a long, long time. I sure have. Our guest is Albert Donay. And I've known Albert, I guess, about 35 years or so. Uh, Albert was at one time the director of Nuclear Free America, and then he branched out and began to study the effects of chemicals on, on people. And, uh, Albert, I'm going to ask you to tell us uh, what you're doing today and tell us about multiple chemical sensitivity and how it affects people, because this is a- actually your area of expertise. Well, thank you, uh, Patricia, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, nuclear, excuse me, uh, in Nuclear Free America was a project I worked on um, before I got involved in toxicology and public health. Um, and when I started working on multiple chemical sensitivity, it was with a doctor named Grace Veem, who had just started treating veterans from the first Gulf War and was uh, running into a lot of resistance from their VA and DOD doctors. And then that was back in 1994. Uh, we recognized a great need in the civilian world as well as among vets for proper diagnosis and treatment of MCS, which um, then is now commonly overlapped with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. The multiple chemical sensitivity part as the name suggests, is being hypersensitive to chemicals, whether you inhale them, ingest them in your food, put them on your skin. Um, People become so sensitive they can no longer tolerate all types of exposures they once did, whether it's somebody's perfume or what I call GI Joe perfume, WD-40 oils. Uh, People lose their tolerance for all these petrochemical products. And for the first 10 years we worked on this syndrome, that's all we thought there was. Um, I've since gone back to school and got a degree in toxicology to study this more. And so I hope today I can talk to people about um, the types of MCS because we've discovered the main type is actually easily tested and treated. Um, I'll come back to that, but let me stop there for my introduction. Thank you. Um, tell us what the uh, symptomology is of multiple chemical sensitivity, Albert. What do people experience? Well, the easiest way to tell them, I come back to that overlap, it looks like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, which are two diseases that the VA and the DOD do now finally officially recognize after congressional direction that they start looking for it. But Congress never directed that they look for MCS. The MCS component is simply asking uh, about sensitivity to common everyday chemicals. If the person reports that they no longer tolerate paint, perfume, cleaning products, lots of different types of chemicals triggering 
multiple symptoms in multiple organs. That's the definition. If you only got symptoms in your lungs, we might call that asthma. If you only got a migraine, um, we'd call that a migraine. Um, people with MCS experience multiple reactions all at once. So they might get the migraine and the brain fog, as well as a respiratory reaction, a skin reaction. They may uh, develop a twitch or a weakness in a leg or an arm. All of this together is very unusual, and that's what distinguishes MCS from what we call single-organ sensitivity syndromes. <laughs> so cool. asthma and migraines just affect one organ. That's the key difference. We tell people, by the way, seeking accommodation, not to try to teach the world about MCS. It's not on them. They can simply point to these more commonly recognized components they may have and try to get people to accommodate their migraine or their asthma. Trying to get people to accommodate MCS still brings up a lot of unhelpful um, backlash in a lot of settings, especially in the workplace with landlords. It's easier to not fight that battle and just seek the same accommodations for your other conditions. It seems that what we had during the Desert Storm, Vietnam, and the now Iraqi freedom, and during freedom, and just military operations, we had so many complex neurotoxic exposures, so many respiratory toxic exposures, so many gastrointestinal toxic exposures, that what it appears and the way it's hit me and everybody else I know, and you know we've talked about this for many years, is it was synergistic in nature. In other words, one plus one wasn't two. One plus one was three or five or seven. And then, Absolutely. It was and then very when much you get, like spraying paint uh, uh, on a canvas again and again. You built up many layers of exposure. And if you stand back and look at it, it, you know, it looks like crazy, uh, all confused exposures. But there are some easy ways to get at it that the DOD and VA doctors, unfortunately, never accepted and took up from the civilian doctors. Twenty years ago, we were meeting with them at the invitation of Bernie Sanders and um, both Republican and Democratic senators with him. Um, I should remember their names, but I don't. Um, but we tried for several times to get them to look at these diseases differently with the benefit of all the civilian doctors' experience. Uh, Dr. Veeam was accompanied by Dr. Ray, Dr. Meggs, uh, people who've been doing a lot of research on Gulf War vets in private practice. And what, where they start from is to first help the patient uh, develop a safe home where they can retreat and not be more poisoned. As we say, every day you're being poisoned is getting sicker is a day you're not getting better. And so just getting that accommodation where they live to have a safe home is a critical first step. And obviously VA and DOD don't really help people with that. Well, I think there's such a, been a such problem because in today household materials and all this stuff, man-made materials, and I guess the only way to say it is better living through chemistry, which has turned into a catastrophic disaster. Your normal yes, air that you're breathing... Is, uh, as the response... The recognition of the problem is in the cleaning product aisle in your local supermarket. Twenty years ago, 
there were no unscented, undyed alternatives. Now every major label, Tide, etc., has an option that's brightly labeled, scent-free, dye-free, right? That's because such a large percentage of Americans now need and demand this, that they're willing finally to cater to the market. The, the government health agencies aren't helping us, but industry is responding to a real demand for it. And, of course, it's still impossible for someone with MCS to walk down that aisle without getting sick because of all the other products. Um, but now, thankfully, we have Amazon Prime, and for whatever it is a year, you can have everything delivered to your door. Uh, that's made life with MCS a lot easier. People can set up a, a safe space outside their door uh, in a shed or a garage and let things air out and make sure they're safe before they bring them in their home. You really have to keep this up full time because if you let your guard down and and bring in, uh, say, a, a new paint or a pesticide treatment in your home, you might be out of there for months before you could tolerate it again. I know when I work with Bill Meggs and Bill Ray and that both of those individuals and Dr. Ruth McGill, I mean, you guys were all on the cutting edge of stuff. And both Bill Meggs and Bill Ray, they had brought all this stuff up so many years ago that it, it I know when we testified up at IOM or the CDC and they brought this stuff up, it was almost as if, well, you guys, we need to banish you guys because you're talking about the truth and you're, the economic impact is so devastatingly incredible. And yet now what we've seen over the years is extraordinarily healthy young men have come extraordinarily sick after such a short period of time of these complex exposures. And then frustration sets in. I mean, what can we do, Albert? Albert, let me ask you before uh, you go on here. Is this, uh, does it have an ICD-10 code now? Is it largely, or I, I presume you're going to oh, tell me question. that it's not... Great, great question. Yeah, ICD-10 is the International Classification of Diseases book, which every country either adopts from the World Health Organization or tweaks. So, of course, the U.S. has their own version, and in there, there is no MCS, unfortunately. But there is an MCS in some codes of other countries, and there are codes that are close enough. <laughs> but, again, we've learned over the years uh, don't fight battles we don't need to. I learned that from veterans, actually. Um, and we can um, get effective testing and treatment now for the lion's share of this without doctors and hospitals at all. At first aid, do it yourself, in the field, be your own medic approach. Which, if you think about it, is how humans existed for all of human history, except maybe the last 300 years, we've had doctors. But before that, we didn't. <laughs> and here we are. So it turns out there are some really effective uh, ways you can test and monitor your progress and treat what is the underlying cause of a great many of the symptoms that are common to these neurological illnesses. Just like chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and MCS overlap, right? Each of their, the, the muscle and joint pain part, the fatigue part, the chemical sensitivity part, they can exist on their own, but it's rare. 
usually it's somebody has two or even all three of them. Um, that was one of the first things Dr. Veeam and I studied in 100 of our MCS patients. turned out 88 had chronic fatigue syndrome and 49 had fibromyalgia. Um, so there's a lot of uh, other ways to look at it. The treatment, the testing and treatment we now recommend is for this monkey in the middle syndrome, not the fringes, but the elephant in the room. I keep mixing my metaphors. I apologize. Uh, and we call that multi-sensory sensitivity to distinguish it from pure MCS where people are sensitive to chemicals in this uh, larger syndrome that affects about 90% of the people with MCS. They're not just sensitive to chemicals, but they become more sensitive to light, sound, touch, taste, temperature, vibration, sometimes even electromagnetic fields. Um, they will wear sunglasses more often, cut the shirt tags out of their collars, um, avoid hot or cold days outside because they just can't self-regulate well anymore. So over the years, I've asked a lot of vets about this, and um, a good percentage of them have it. Nobody's ever done a, a random study. We don't know the number. But I'm curious if you guys have heard much talk of this. The VA and DOD don't have a name for this either. Um, but when every, when all your senses are affected like this, the only known cause is carbon monoxide poisoning. And that was a very common exposure in the war, in the battlefield. Whenever you fire a weapon, there's a cloud of exhaust right, with CO in it. And if you're unlucky enough to be at the other end of the weapon, when it explodes, there's another cloud with CO in it. People also had the tentier exposures and stood behind um, tailpipes of different kinds of vehicles to stay warm. Uh, so all of these CO exposures add up, just like um, pouring uh, water into uh, sand. Your body laps it up when you're exposed to it, except uh, in your body, it leads, goes through your blood into your tissues and it poisons your muscles, and that's why you end up with chronic fatigue and muscle and joint pain. Uh, the reason it poisons your senses is that it actually controls all of our senses. And sorry, let me stop describing it and ask if you've heard of this from the people you work with. I certainly have. You know that I'm a veteran advocate and work with sick and dying veterans who have been uh, neglected by the VA and can't get care. And the veterans I, I work with have this whole range of symptoms which, uh, which I believe contribute to their illness. And the first thing I do when I speak with a veteran is to try to determine their exposures in field, what they did in theater and what they might have been exposed to. And uh, that's, that's the very first question I ask when I'm working with a veteran. So certainly so I do. Is there any test that um, you know of for any of these other exposures that they can do on their own or get their doctor to order? The nice thing about nice, I apologize for those who've been poisoned. There's nothing nice about it. But at least one of the silver linings of being poisoned by carbon monoxide is that it remains in your body as long as you're still suffering the symptoms. We should be able to easily test your breath or your blood 
and see if you have a higher than normal level still in your tissues. And if you do, that's the proof uh, anybody should be satisfied with that you had some prior exposure you still haven't gotten rid of and you need to be treated until you get rid of it. Even better news is that you can treat yourself, as I mentioned. Uh, you don't need a doctor for that either. And we'll come back to the treatments in a minute. But um, let me ask you that question about um, tests for other uh, exposures. Have you found the VA or DOD willing to test for anything else, like even basics like lead exposure or uranium? Bloody hell no. My dear, you must be kidding me. The VA is still engaged in uh, denial and... Um, Candidly, and it's a dreadful thing to say, but as a veteran advocate, I say it, it's, it's a hell of a lot cheaper uh, for them. It's a dreadful thing to say to bury a veteran than it is to treat them. So, hell no, they're certainly not going to acknowledge uh, toxic exposures in any way, shape, or form if they can help it. But what other kind of tests are there, uh, Albert, for uh, well, MCS? Well, two very simple ones. The simplest of all um, is often dismissed because people say, well, what does that mean? It obviously means different things in different contexts. Any test depends on what we're looking for. The simplest test for this, if you can afford it, is to buy a professional carbon monoxide detector, put it in a bag, and blow it up like a balloon. That's your breath sample. And any CO detector that reads out from zero, like zero, one, two, three, can do this. Unfortunately, your home CO alarm, if you have one, even if it has a digital display, doesn't ever show you anything below 30. Uh, it may even display all the way up to 29 as zero. So it's really worse than worthless. If it has a recall, it might show you from 10, but that's not what I'm talking about. You need a professional CO detector. It's about the size of your, your smartphone. And with that, you can measure your environment, of course, and whenever you want, we suggest every day, like taking your temperature or weighing yourself, take your breath CO level and monitor that as an indicator of your poisoning and your progress. If you don't have any, then you don't have to go down this road and you probably don't have the multi-sensory sensitivity I just described. Um, but if you do have it and you, the testing shows a high level of CO, then there's a whole bunch of treatments you can try to get rid of it and many of them work very quickly. The fastest way to get CO out of the blood was first recognized in World War I by British physicians who'd been recruited from civilian life where they did a lot of bleeding. And when they got to the battlefield, they noticed that the victims of shell shock who were bleeding recovered much better and much faster than the ones who weren't. If you were in a trench and you were all hit with a blast, some of you might get cut with shrapnel and some didn't. And everybody was uh, found in a state of shock. They brought them back and those who bled recovered so they started bleeding people deliberately and uh, used that as a treatment throughout the war even after the introduction of poison gas because they realized it was a really effective, fast way to get gas out of your blood. And so today I recommend people call the Red Cross, make an appointment to donate, and if they can take their blood, great. 
um, it's free. With the background of veterans, they might not take your blood. You would need to get a doctor to order, like a prescription for the blood draw, and then the Red Cross will do it for you and just throw away the result instead of adding it to their blood supply. You can do that every 60 days. People feel quite a bit better within a few days. And another version of this that I think is really interesting, you can look up YouTube videos. I don't want to talk about it because it's kind of gross. It's called wet cupping, um, cupping like C-U-P. It's an ancient uh, medical art from Asia that draws blood um, from under a cup. It doesn't hurt or leave a scar, uh, and you can have that done without a prescription as well. It takes half an hour, maybe. So that's the best way to get the CO out of your body is to bleed it out. <clears throat> and the other best way is sunbathing with your head and eyes covered if you're sun sensitive for just an hour a day. It turns out that our bodies can excrete up to five times more CO per hour when we're out in the sun than when we're lying inside in the dark. A lot of people get depressed and lie inside in the dark. It's really bad for your health. So we urge people to try the sunbathing, especially if they have those nasty, itchy, and red rashes that are caused in these cases by CO trapped in their tissues. And what about uh, other chemicals, uh, Albert? Is there a way to test? For them? Well, lead. Obviously, if you've been around exploding things, right. uh, you should test for lead. Um, and lead is a terrible neurotoxin. In fact, what's interesting to me about lead is that it has almost all the same symptoms as carbon monoxide and vice versa, because they both attack um, our nervous system in very particular ways um, and can end up interfering with our use of oxygen for very different reasons. But Essentially, the oxygen can't get where it needs to and do what it needs to. And with the um, lead poisoning, the one distinguishing feature that we sometimes see is what's called the lead line in people's teeth or nails, the dark line that um, appears in their teeth or nails right across them. And CO isn't known for that. The other difference is that lead poisoning and all the other heavy metals that we know about, uh, mercury that we worry about anyway, don't cause multisensory sensitivity. Only carbon monoxide does that because actually our body makes and uses CO all the time to modulate our nervous system. So it would make sense that if you mess with that, you, you mess with your senses. If you have too high an exposure, you're senseless in a coma, but what's happened to these people is they're now being poisoned from the inside out, like a drip, drip, drip from their tissues. And instead of making them senseless, it's hypersensitized them. Um, and fortunately, that is something we can normalize. And when we get the CO out of their tissues, not only do their senses recover a more normal range of tolerance, but all these other CO symptoms get better. The fatigue, the muscle and joint pain. Etc. the brain fog, the GI upset, the sleep function, the rashes. It may not cure the total illness, but we think taking out the CO pieces of the puzzle removes a lot of the noise 
right, that we can deal with. And then we can look in three or four months, see what the person has left, and maybe at that point they need to see a specialist for what they have left. But just to clean house, um, to get rid of what I call the CO hangover um, that can last for years, um, people can do that on their own. One of the things that Al Johnson and, again, Bill Ray and Bill Miggs had done, and I was got to do it a little bit, is hyperbaric medicine. And this is where they're putting you in a hyperbaric chamber, and they're taking up the O2 up to a high level and basically you know, forcing cellular saturation of oxygen. And the hope and the idea, again, is remove you know, the CO and the CO2 and all this other stuff that's in there. Can I tell you the phrase? Um, I, I won't use that phrase. But the, what I just discovered recently, and I was horrified to discover it, um, I did a research paper for the Society of Toxicology about the history of carbon monoxide poisoning treatments. I wanted to know uh, what had been used in earlier eras that people might use today. That's how I found that World War One reference to treating uh, soldiers on the battlefield with it. Um, when I looked at this controversial history of what type of CO poisoning treatment is better, the argument today is between hyperbaric and just high-flow normal oxygen, but with a tight-fitting mask, and they're really blowing it at you, uh, like you might get in an ambulance, not what you would get at home on a concentrator, but uh, a real flow right in your face. Uh, it's turned out that those studies over the last 30 years had almost the identical risk of what we call delayed neurological symptoms or delayed neurological sequelae, where people leave after their hyperbaric treatment feeling wonderful, no more symptoms, makes everybody feel better, and four or five days or weeks or even months later, they come back with new symptoms they didn't have before. Those are the delayed symptoms. And they're often neurological, things like Parkinson's. So they can be temporary or lifelong, and doctors are worried about preventing them. And they argue over which one of these is better. Well, it turns out they're the same. But the older treatments, before we started doing this in the 1970s, had a much lower risk. It was only 6% instead of 24%, like fourfold less. We really made a mistake when we left the other treatments that didn't use a lot of oxygen. And I researched that with some other uh, colleagues, and we quickly found the answer, um, and that is that when you pump oxygen into the body like this, you push off all the carbon monoxide. They were only measuring it in your veins where it comes out, and they didn't see any more. So they said, great job, we're done here. They didn't realize that the carbon monoxide went off on the arterial side going into your body, and it was pushed, just like the oxygen is pushed, into your tissues so that weeks and months later, that CO would have to come back out again. And it's not an easy way back out. Often the CO ends up free in your tissues and causes problems before it gets back to your blood and your lungs and can be exhaled. 
So it's really dangerous to push more CO into people, and I now only recommend treatments that take CO out of people, right? If you cut yourself and bleed, the CO is going out. Um, uh, the best analogy I can give uh, that everybody's familiar with one way or the other is premenstrual syndrome. All the symptoms are the same as what we're talking about, but fortunately for women who suffer this every month, it stops the day their period begins, like clockwork. The day their period begins, those symptoms stop and they get possibly new symptoms like cramps that go with their actual period, but those premenstrual uh, the brain fog, mood swings, feel like crap, shut the door, leave me alone, turn out the lights, right, turn off the noise, syndrome goes away. And hormones are not changing at that time of the period. What is changing is the carbon monoxide level in their body that had been gradually rising during their period falls all of a sudden the first day of their period because most of it goes out when they start to lose blood, the endometrial lining is being shed, and that's where the CO is coming from. Out it goes, symptoms go away. So that's how quickly a good bleeding can remove uh, these symptoms in people. So um, for the benefit of veterans listening, let's clarify this danger to our shoulders and veterans uh, essentially, uh, the CO issue or the carbon monoxide issue would arise out of the use of the, the fairly primitive heaters uh, or stoves that are commonly used on the battlefield or in theater in tents, and also as a consequence of any firing of, uh, of uh, any form of missile, the backfire of it would be uh, a source. Uh, am Absolutely. I right on that? Uh, those are the two main sources. And after Gulf War One, where you know so many people got hit with the syndrome, thirty to forty percent of everybody over there was out in the field, living in tents. World, uh, excuse me. When we got to Gulf War Two and whatever we call what it, we're left with now, people moved onto bases for the most part and started living in. Um, proper housing, and that exposure went away. They no longer needed to stand behind vehicles to stay warm or to heat with tent heaters that were leaky or even unventilated. So that was a huge improvement. They still had the burn pits. That's I'm going to mention that, of course, in the oil fires. Those were the ones that were studied the most, but because they were relatively um, brief for most people, they were invisible, <laughs> they could take steps to avoid it as best they could, and eventually most people were um, found to have not been around those exposures, right? The majority of sick people must have had some other exposure because the um, burn pit issue and the burning oil wells didn't affect everyone equally. And I recognize mm -hmm. there were people who didn't even go overseas who got sick even just after the vaccination. So I'm not saying this is the only cause. I'm saying this is the elephant in the room that is really easy to test and treat on your own. And with this type of uh, direct approach, you could be hopefully resolving this in a couple of months and seeing what you have left over. Mm -hmm. And it's bound to be less than what you started with. Many, what many about years. CW? 
exposure, uh, Albert, chemical warfare exposure. Uh, our young people who are serving today are being exposed to that in Iraq, where they used a, uh, a viscous material to make uh, their chemical warfare agents stick to the sand or whatever surface it might be. And I would maintain that young people are being exposed in Afghanistan and elsewhere because, unfortunately, CW is the great equalizer. So what about something so like I that? This, yeah, I, I share your concern. But from my perspective as a toxicologist, every conventional weapon is a chemical weapon unless we put a biological agent in it as well, that firing at one end and detonation at the other end are both chemical weapons uh, exposures. There are different mixes of gases and particles at each end, right? At the detonation end, we have to throw in the mix everything we just blew up, which could be nasty if we hit something with fuel in it, say, or something that catches on fire. But at the detonation end, for our own troops, we've known through the Army Industrial Hygiene Command and similar organizations in the Air Force and the Navy studying this since World War II, that just the way we conduct war, the way we drive vehicles, the way we fire from turrets on battleships and you know, Bradleys and whatever else we fire you know, from a turret, poison our troops every time that happens because there's a cloud of um, gas left behind. And they told me when I called uh, in between the wars why they hadn't taken Seotis into battle and would they do it next time. They said, why? We know there's exposure. There's nothing we can do about it. I think one of the things that also, and this goes back to with Andres, Carnegie Bath, and you work with Andres, Andres came up with the term LSCAN disease, and basically what was happening is all of these chemical compounds, inorganic, organic compounds, and everything is being absorbed in the sand and the dust and the dirt that's then spread all over creation. So now you have the particulates that are getting into everything that are transported, and then we're seeing it, and we've seen it happen with everybody over and over again, where it's transported back here to the States or to Europe or whatever, and then all of a sudden the spouse is going down sick where the child is going down sick. Well, that's There's because they don't see There's definitely a thread of transmission for a lot of things that the troops brought home. Uh, we excrete chemicals through our breath, our skin, our urine, our stool, saliva, right? So if we're intimate with our kids or our partners when we get home, um, we know the story even of people who open duffel bags and wash their husband's stuff even when their husband, before her husband came home and they got sick from that. So all of these we call second-hand or secondary exposures can take their toll as well. And obviously, uh, I wouldn't expect carbon monoxide-related symptoms there unless they had a CO exposure at home. Unfortunately, CO poisoning is the most common form of poisoning in America, a quarter million people a year on average go to hospital emergency rooms and a couple thousand um, are hospitalized and about 2,000 a year die. The majority don't go at all because it looks like flu-like illness and they don't suspect it. But if there's more than one person in a home or driving a vehicle who complain of headache, fatigue, dizziness, 
CO is the first thing we should suspect. And just because you got CO poisoned in Iraq um, in your tent doesn't mean you're immune from having uh, an experience when you get home and your your water heater might poison you or the car in your garage. You uh, back in two thousand. I'm sitting here looking at your copy. You had the screen testing and treatment of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning related disorders. Has that protocol been adopted fairly wide, or is it still one of those neat things that are kind of hidden? Or it hasn't. And frankly, I guess I'm glad I thought of this before I died. Um, by the way, I have to say happy birthday to Patricia because she and I share a birthday, and it's tomorrow. Um, uh, <laughs> What I thought of before I uh, moved on is that um, we don't need to overcome that hurdle of educating a new generation or the old generation of doctors about this illness and how to test it and how to treat it. I tried that approach for going on 15 years through uh MCS referral and resources with Dr. Veeam and supporting other organizations and efforts in Congress and, um, you know, brick walls are pretty hard things to hit your head against. So the epiphany was that people with this syndrome can test themselves with a $100 device um, and they can treat themselves by calling up the Red Cross and go for an appointment to give blood and going sunbathing. That seemed like the easier message to get, and I'm finding it's much better received by the patients who are looking for help than by their doctors who are skeptical to the point of even being unwilling in the past to test for the CO poisoning in the first place. They wouldn't even send them for a blood test. I do want to mention, because people are listening, please don't go and get a blood test for carbon monoxide because inevitably it's done incorrectly. They'll usually just take a sample from your vein or your artery, but that's like blood pressure with one number. We need both to see which way the CO is going, and uh, you can't see that with only one sample. So we recommend that people spend $100 if they can afford it and buy a professional detector and test their breath at home. There's no cost once you own the device, and you can use it every day much more useful than just getting a blood test done once. Um, in the same way, doctors could treat it if they wanted. They could prescribe oxygen that you could take at home, and I think that's safe because it doesn't cause this problem of pushing the CO into your tissues. If you're using a tank or a concentrator at home, you would have a low flow rate and a nasal cannula so that you wouldn't uh, experience the problems people get with the hyperbaric but it's very hard to get doctors to prescribe it and it's a, we found out we don't need it um, it's very empowering to people that they can take this on themselves and monitor themselves without the need for um, their doctor to approve it we do encourage people to tell their doctor and uh, take the instrument if they get one and show the doctor how easy it is to measure CO in their breath Maybe they have a medical or legal need to have that number written down in their file, for instance. But really, it's just it's just not necessary. And if your doctor isn't open to it, um, it may not be worth you know your time or theirs. I'm I'm looking here at some of the CO-related disorders, and just go through this list, and you can explain. Okay, we've got sure. attention dis, dis 
deficit disorder, ADHD. Okay, we got anemia and hemochromatosis, asthma. Here we go, autism, Asperger's, or PDD of any type. What's PDD? Uh, it's another word for children who are having a problem with development, pervasive developmental disorder. Um, think of it as the diagnosis doctors gave parents who didn't want their kids labeled with autism or Asperger's. Okay, got blurred and painful vision, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression of any kind, dermatitis, especially a red rash. That is so common amongst veterans and I mean, it's just like there. Diabetes. Obviously, you know, Agent Orange is still plaguing us to this day, and it's going to plague us forever and ever and ever. And then what we're seeing then, again, with the Agent Orange and the diabetes, we're definitely seeing all these things in genetically modifications, and we're seeing it now across generations. Uh, epilepsy. So i got to emphasize, you're right about the Agent Orange and the uh, effect across generations. Um we don't believe CO does that, thank goodness. Um, and obviously, there are different causes for all the diseases you're mentioning. The reason they got on this list is that there's strong evidence in the medical literature that people who've been CO poisoned can end up with this, that, or the other syndrome, often several at once. CO is known as the great imitator in the textbooks because it can look like so many other different diseases. But, you know, the starting point is flu-like illness, but from there it can go in almost any direction and come up with any outcome. Even a single overnight exposure has been reported to cause diabetes type 2 and Parkinsonism when the person woke up the next day. Boom. Another it. another thing along, we've got this problem, and we've seen this from Desert Storm and after and from Vietnam and over, uh, the total misuse of pesticides in our entire system, I guess. we got total misuse of pesticides and use in agriculture and food, so it's into, into our diet now. You know, the good right. old thing and all you of watch that is the, a much extra load on your liver when you eat food if there's pesticides in it. Uh, your liver has to work overtime because now you're not just digesting the lettuce and the tomatoes, you're also digesting the pesticides. And people with this syndrome and with pure MCS as well have an overloaded, incapacitated, or rather handicapped liver. It still has some function, but not the function it used to. So I urge people who can afford it to eat organic food and avoid that extra load on their liver. But the good news is that when you get the CO out of your body, the vast majority of it, I, I mentioned most of it being in muscles, the second richest organ that collects CO like a sponge is your liver. And all those detox enzymes we've heard about, cytochrome, cytochrome P450, they're like little magnets for CO. And when CO binds to them, oxygen cannot and they can't do their job. So just cleaning house, getting the CO out, getting your tissue level back to normal allows your organ's natural capacity to recover, and often that's enough to get people a lot better because it's as if they've been driving a car with one cylinder out, maybe two. One thing was real interesting with Bill Ray and Bill Meggs and Al Johnson, the detoxification protocols that they used. 
and again, this involved IV therapy, and then the other thing, too, obviously, we were going into uh, the saunas and everything else, the wet and dry sauna. And I mean, this is totally under medical supervision at this time, at the same time with nutritional supplementation. Right, and even their oxygen was given under medical supervision, which wasn't really necessary because anybody can take oxygen safely at home. But while you visited them, they would give you two hours a day usually and supervise that and all these other uh, often invasive procedures. Um, the good news, I guess, I'm bringing back is after looking at the literature going back 200 years, it's real clear that we don't need that. <laughs> we can reverse the worst of CO poisoning in a few months with simple blood donations, sunbathing, and the third method, uh, third and fourth methods I recommend for people who can tolerate it are massage in your limbs to loosen up the um, and uh, better metabolize the muscles that may not have been getting enough uh, oxygen with your illness and a breathing technique that causes you to breathe more per minute so you both exhale more CO and you inhale more oxygen per minute than just you sitting at rest. We don't want you to hyperventilate. Um, this is more of an, a reflex uh, breathing method. It's basically breathing through a paper cup with a hole in the bottom. Through a hole about the size of a quarter in the bottom of a Dixie cup, and now put that over your nose and mouth like a snout so it's tight against your face. That's the treatment uh, for uh, 20 to 30 minutes at a time, as many times a day as you can tolerate it. Um, you'll notice your breathing gets a lot bigger, and it's a reflex. You don't have to do anything. It's, it's great for lying on the couch while you watch television. Well, the other thing, too, and you've got to listen here, memory loss and early Alzheimer's. I remember when Andres, we were down to CDC in 99, and Andres came up and said, well, you know, all this golf war illness and everything we're seeing is exactly the same thing, symptomatic of what we're seeing Alzheimer's, where Alzheimer's were these low, very low, very slow toxic exposures over a period of time where we had the incubation period, and then with the kids in Gulf War illness, it went over to Iraq, Desert Storm, and everything, and now we're seeing OIF, OEF. They came back with the sudden acute exposures, and we're seeing the same symptoms in these young kids versus what we're seeing in the older crowd that had the long-term chronic. Absolutely. Uh, I, I want to mention a couple more that are really important in the context of infection. I mentioned earlier that our bodies make carbon monoxide. Uh, women make more during their period, and it makes them feel like crap. Well, when we're going through any infection, bacterial or viral, um, even the worst infections, Zika, West Nile, Ebola, that early flu-like illness can advance to a really life-threatening, um, going into shock, internal bleeding, hemorrhaging stage where you may die, right? That's what kills people in those horrible fevers is when they enter that stage, if they don't get out of it. That so carbon, carbon monoxide is, is a metabolic byproduct of this? It's the agent of it. The body increases carbon monoxide with temperature, so that in those peak phases of infection, when you're hitting a 104, 105, 106, carbon monoxide is very high in your body. It's part of your body's effort to make itself, I love this phrase, inhospitable to the organism. 
whatever is attacking you, right, is going to be stressed if the body can turn up the heat and shut down the oxygen and turn up the carbon monoxide. So it's basically the body trying to say, out, 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 by stressing the invader, but it can kill you if it goes too far. If you survive that peak phase, the final phase of the illness that some people get, not everyone, but in Zika, quite a few people ended up with Guillain-Barre syndrome. So did Gulf War vets. Guillain-Barre is this sort of a bad fibromyalgia with paralysis that can last months to years as people recover from an infection usually, and they very, very slowly recover they can be completely or partially paralyzed until they do. And I believe that's also a carbon monoxide exposure syndrome, but there it's not the buildup of CO that is poisoning them. It's the very gradual prolonged decay or um, excretion of the CO from that peak phase of exposure they no longer have They have to now get rid of all the CO they absorbed. And unfortunately, what do we do? We put them in a bed and we put them in the dark and um, we don't uh, aggressively bleed them. I think if we did that, we could shorten Guillain-Barre from months uh, to days or weeks if we knew what we were targeting. So uh, even long after the fact, the message is real simple. If you have CO symptoms and you have elevated CO in your body, that one is the cause of the other. You can get rid of the CO and the symptoms get better. It's just that simple. There's a whole lot of noise around it that may remain that will change perhaps if you remove the CO piece of the puzzle. But we keep telling people this is the place to start because you can do this on your own. All you need is a thermometer um, and a CO detector. Ironically, if you take your temperature with this chronic illness, it's low. It only spikes in a fever. The rest of the time, men and women with this chronic CO poisoning have a low temperature whenever they measure it, but especially first thing in the morning before they get out of bed, they might be only 96 or 97. Is that something either of you have heard about? Well, that goes mm-hmm. back to the same thing again, the sensitivity, hypersensitivity to cold and heat. I mean, yes. golf or illness and myself and others, we've heard over and over again, and we've measured it, we get colder easy. And even in the warm, hot months, you're wearing wool socks or trying to keep warm, and then at night... You might have stayed out warm at night, but earlier in the morning, say 3, 4, or 5 in the morning, all of a sudden your body temperature has dropped and you're, you're cold. Yep. So right. I think we've been, we're talking around the same elephant, and I hope uh, the listeners can go out and buy their digital thermometer and digital professional CO detector and start measuring themselves to see uh, if they have a problem. If not, just put it put it away in your bathroom somewhere and whenever you next feel really ill, go check your breath again. With almost any illness you may feel, um, your CO and temperature will go up together and uh, make you feel like crap, unfortunately. Um, But these simple methods can help people recover faster. 
Excuse me. How does diet come into play with all this? How does diet play a role? Mm-hmm. Well, I urge you to think of that impaired liver. And the more variation you have in your diet, the more work it is for the liver. People often end up with their food, their diet cut way back to just a few foods they can tolerate. And unfortunately, they should think of their gut as another sensitive organ, just like their eyes are sensitive to light and their ears to noise. Their gut is sensitive to its exposure, which is food. Well, I think the gut, from what I've heard and understand, because of all the complex toxic exposures, the gut and the basic chemistry in that whole thing to get in the intestinal system is altered. So what was a, nor- a norm? There's now a new norm yes. where things are not... I, uh, and we can't begin to correct that. Let me leave with this thought. I think we're getting close to the end of our hour. Um, just as no one would try to to learn or do a complex task when they had an alcohol hangover on Sunday, right, after drinking Saturday night, they would say, i got to wait till my head's clear, then I can get to work. But seal poisoning can leave a seal hangover that similarly makes it impossible to learn new stuff and complete new tasks. It's just very, very difficult. But the good news is when you get through the recovery, even though it might take months instead of one day, like alcohol, um, once you get to the other end of that, the fog lifts the same way it does with an alcohol hangover. Your senses come back to normal. A lot of your organ functions come back to normal. The brain fog gets a lot better. So it's amazing to me that CO is so reversible in its effect but that's a byproduct of our having evolved with it for a million years, you know, making fires and sitting with them every day. Um, humans developed quite a tolerance, and ironically today, most of us live in fresh air, We've and we don't smoke anymore. We've lost our tolerance for CO. But, you know, grease monkeys in garages and uh, people who smoke still have a high tolerance for CO, and they're less affected ironically. So there are vets who smoke and uh, you ask them, why don't you quit smoking? Don't you know it's bad for your illness? And I've often been told, oh, I, I can't quit if I, I've tried it, but whenever I try to quit, my symptoms get worse. That's interesting. But they're really just dulling their senses. High CO exposure, such as you had in the Gulf War, dull your senses. It's not till you come back to fresh air at home do you notice it when you're basically in a withdrawal setting. So just like ex-smokers become hypersensitive to secondhand smoke, ex-alcoholics become hypersensitive to alcohol, let CO poisoning victims become hypersensitive to CO. And you can't avoid it because your body makes it. Uh, as I mentioned, we make it all the time. And in more of it in response to stressors of any kind, not just those environmental light, sound, touch, odor, stress, but we make more of it from mental stress, um, physical stress, infectious stress. It's basically you know, one of the ways our body was built to ring our bell so that we pay attention and notice something stressful is going on. Mm-hmm. And by and large, Albert, you say that the American uh, medical uh, community as a whole, the doctors and the physicians, don't 
don't recognize this. And I know I've been to the doctor myself enough times. I certainly never have been asked about exposures. Uh, Even now, with all the publicity that the Ford Explorers are getting because the, both the police and the civilian models have a CO leak that's poisoning people and causing them to crash and go to emergency rooms seeking help. Even with all that publicity and awareness, even with patients going to their doctors, showing them um, little movies they've made with their phone of their CO detector readings while they're driving in the vehicle, doctors are still not taking it seriously telling them things like, well, it was a low exposure, just go into fresh air, you don't need to worry about it, you'll get better on your own. And Ford, of course, is denying it as well. Uh, at some point, uh, NHTSA will finish an investigation, the government agency, and hopefully recall these vehicles, but there's over a million people driving them, and I worry about all the police driving them, um, more than half the police vehicles in America are Ford Explorers with this problem. So um, it's very widespread, and even w at, with that common exposure, doctors are uh, so clueless that they don't test, and if they do test, they usually, as I mentioned before, just measure arterial or venous alone, and they won't see the whole picture. And I'm afraid that we really shouldn't rely on them, but again, the good news is we don't have to. Mm-hmm. And not only uh, don't they test, as I said, they don't even ask. I mean, everyone who goes to a doctor fills out a questionnaire. Uh, and part of that questionnaire never includes toxic exposures. Well, it might include lead. I've seen them include lead, pesticides. Does anyone smoke in your home? What I've never seen is, do you have any sources of carbon monoxide in your home, like you know, gas-burning appliance, attached garage, fireplace? Um, there are well, we're, we're out of time here, ladies and gentlemen. gentlemen. Home that they don't. Yeah, well, we're hey, out Albert. of time. Happy birthday, Albert. Thank yeah, you. happy birthday to both of you. Thank you very much, Dr. Albert Donne. Incredible research, incredible help for our veterans. Thank you, and God bless you, sir. Thank you, Doc. It's been a